0: Welcome back, listeners, to 1001 Stories for the Road and a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, chapters 33 through 35. I'm going to skip chapter 33, which is titled 6th Century Political Economy, basically because it's very slow and I don't think you'll be that interested. However, chapters 34 and 35 are very good, and I believe you'll enjoy them very much. So now, chapter 34 of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. The Yankee and the King sold as slaves. Well, what did I better do? Nothing in a hurry, sure. I must get up a diversion, anything to employ me while I could think, and while these poor fellows could have a chance to come to life again. There sat Marco, petrified in the act of trying to get the hang of his miller gun, turned to stone, just in the attitude he was in when my pile driver fell. The toy still gripped in his unconscious fingers. "'So I took it from him and proposed to explain its mystery. "'Mystery! A simple little thing like that, "'and yet it was mysterious enough for that race and that age. "'I never saw such an awkward people with machinery. "'You see, they were totally unused to it. "'The Miller gun was a little double-barreled tube of toughened glass "'with a neat little trick of a spring to it, "'which upon pressure would let a shot escape. "'But the shot wouldn't hurt anybody. "'It would only drop into your hand.' In the gun were two sizes, we mustard seed shot and another sort that were several times larger. They were money. The mustard seed shot represented mill rays, the larger ones mills. So the gun was a purse and very handy too. You could pay out money in the dark with it, with accuracy, and you could carry it in your mouth or in your vest pocket if you had one. I made them of several sizes, one size so large that it would carry the equivalent of a dollar. Using shot for money was a good thing for the government. The metal cost nothing, and the money couldn't be counterfeited, for I was the only person in the kingdom who knew how to manage a shot tower. Paying the shot soon came to be a common phrase. Yes, and I knew it would still be passing men's lips, away down in the 19th century, yet none would suspect how and when it originated. The king joined us, about this time, mightily refreshed by his nap, and feeling good. Anything could make me nervous now, I was so uneasy, for our lives were in danger, and it so worried me to detect a complacent something in the king's eye which seemed to indicate that he had been loading himself up for a performance of some kind or other. Confound it! Why must he go and choose such a time as this? I was right. He began, straight off, in the most innocently artful and transparent and lubberly way to lead up to the subject of agriculture. The cold sweat broke out all over me. I wanted to whisper in his ear, "'Man, we're in awful danger. "'Every moment is worth the principality "'till we get back these men's confidence. "'Don't waste any of this golden time.' "'But, of course, I couldn't do it. "'Whisper to him? "'It would look as if we were conspiring. "'So I had to sit there and look calm and pleasant "'while the king stood over that dynamite mine "'and mooned along about his damned onions and things. "'At first the tumult of my own thoughts— summoned by the danger signal and swarming to the rescue from every quarter of my skull, kept up such a hurrah and confusion and fifing and drumming that I couldn't take in a word. But presently, when my mob of gathering plans began to crystallize and fall into position and form line of battle, a sort of order and quiet ensued, and I caught the boom of the king's batteries, as if from far away. We're not the best way, methinks, albeit it is not to be denied that authorities differ as concerning this point. "'some contending that the onion is but an unwholesome berry "'when stricken early from the tree. "'The audience showed signs of life "'and sought each other's eyes in a surprised and troubled way. "'While as others do yet maintain, with much show of reason, "'that this is not of necessity the case, "'instancing that plums and other like cereals "'do be always dug in the unripe state.' "'The audience exhibited distinct distress, yes, and also fear.' yet are they clearly wholesome, the more especially when one doth assuage the asperities of their nature by admixture of the tranquilizing juice of the wayward cabbage. The wild light of terror began to glow in these men's eyes, and one of them muttered, These be errors, every one. God hath surely smitten the mind of this farmer. I was in miserable apprehension. I sat upon thorns. And further instancing the known truth that in the case of animals... The young, which may be called the green fruit of the creature, is the better, all confessing that when a goat is ripe, his fur doth heat and soar and game his flesh, and the witch defect, taken in connection with his several rancid habits and fulsome appetites, and godless attitudes of mind, and bilious quality of morals. At that point they rose and went for him, with a fierce shout. The one would betray us, the other is mad, kill them, kill them. "'They flung themselves upon us. "'What joy flamed up in the king's eye! "'He might be lame in agriculture, "'but this kind of thing was just in his line. "'He had been fasting long. "'He was hungry for a fight. "'He hit the blacksmith a crack under the jaw "'that lifted him clear off his feet "'and stretched him flat on his back. "'St. George for Britain!' "'And he downed the wheelwright. "'The mason was big, "'but I laid him out like nothing. "'The three gathered themselves up and came again, "'and went down again, "'came again, and kept on repeating this, with native British pluck, until they were battered to jelly, reeling with exhaustion, and so blind that they couldn't tell us from each other, and yet they kept right on, hammering away at us with what might was left in them, hammering each other, for we stepped aside, and looked on while they rolled, and struggled, and gouged, and pounded, and bit, with the strict and wordless attention to business of so many bulldogs. We looked on without apprehension, for they were fast getting past ability to go for help against us and the arena was far enough from the public road to be safe from intrusion. Well, while they were gradually playing out, it suddenly occurred to me to wonder what had become of Marco. I looked around. He was nowhere to be seen. Oh, but this was ominous. I pulled the king's sleeve, and we glided away and rushed for the hut. No Marco there. No Phyllis there. They had gone to the road for help, sure enough. "'I told the king to give his heels wings, and I would explain later. "'We made good time across the open ground, "'and as we darted into the shelter of the wood, "'I glanced back and saw a mob of excited peasants swarm into view, "'with Marco and his wife at their head. "'They were making a world of noise, but that couldn't hurt anybody. "'The wood was dense, and as soon as we were well into its depths, "'we would take to a tree and let them whistle. "'Ah, but then came another sound. "'Dogs!' "'Yes, that was quite another matter. "'It magnified our contract. "'We must find running water. "'We tore along at a good gait, "'and soon left the sounds far behind "'and modified to a murmur. "'We struck a stream and darted into it. "'We waded swiftly down it, "'in the dim forest light, "'for as much as three hundred yards, "'and then came across an oak "'with a great bough sticking out over the water. "'We climbed up on this bough "'and began to work our way along it "'to the body of the tree.' Now we began to hear those sounds more plainly, so the mob had struck our trail. For a while the sounds approached pretty fast, and then for another while they didn't. No doubt the dogs had found the place where we had entered the stream, and were now waltzing up and down the shores, trying to pick up the trail again. When we were snugly lodged in the tree and curtained with foliage, the king was satisfied. But I was doubtful. I believed we could crawl along a branch and get into the next tree— "'and I judged it worthwhile to try. "'We tried it, and made a success of it, "'though the king slipped at the junction, "'and came near, failing to connect. "'We got comfortable lodgment "'and satisfactory concealment among the foliage, "'and then we had nothing to do but listen to the hunt. "'Presently we heard it coming, "'and coming on the jump, too, yes, "'and down both sides of the stream. "'Louder, louder. "'Next minute it swelled swiftly up "'into a roar of shoutings, barkings, tramplings, "'and swept by like a cyclone. "'I was afraid that the overhanging branch "'would suggest something to them,' said I, "'but I don't mind the disappointment. "'Come, my liege. "'It were well that we make good use of our time. "'We've planked them. "'Dark is coming on, presently. "'If we can cross the stream and get a good start "'and borrow a couple of horses from somebody's pasture "'to use for a few hours, we shall be safe enough.' "'We started down and got nearly to the lowest limb "'when we seemed to hear the hunt returning.' we stopped to listen. "'Yes,' said I. "'They're baffled. They've given it up. They're on their way home. We'll climb back to our roost again and let them go by.' So we climbed back. The king listened a moment and said, "'They still search. I wet the sign. We did best to abide.' He was right. He knew more about hunting than I did. The noise approached steadily, but not with a rush. The king said, They reasoned that we were advantaged by no perious start of them, and being on foot, are as yet no mighty way from where we took to the water. Yes, sire, that's about it, I'm afraid, though I was hoping for better. The noise drew nearer and nearer, and soon the band was drifting under us, on both sides of the water. A voice called a halt from the other bank, and said, And they were so minded, they could get to yon tree by this branch that overhangs, and yet not touch ground. "'You will do well to send a man up it.' "'Mary, that we will do.' "'I was obliged to admire my cuteness in foreseeing this very thing, "'and swapping trees to beat it. "'But, don't you know, there are some things that can beat smartness and foresight?' "'Awkwardness and stupidity can. "'The best swordsman in the world doesn't need to fear the second best swordsman in the world. "'No, the person for him to be afraid of is some ignorant antagonist "'who has never had a sword in his hand before.' HE DOESN'T DO THE THING HE OUGHT TO DO, AND SO THE EXPERT ISN'T PREPARED FOR HIM. HE DOES THE THING HE OUGHT NOT TO DO, AND OFTEN IT CATCHES THE EXPERT OUT AND ENDS HIM ON THE SPOT. WELL, HOW COULD I, WITH ALL MY GIFTS, MAKE ANY VALUABLE PREPARATION AGAINST A nearsighted, CROSS-EYED, PUDDING-HEADED CLOWN WHO WOULD AIM HIMSELF AT THE WRONG TREE, AND HIT THE RIGHT ONE? AND THAT IS EXACTLY WHAT HE DID. HE WENT FOR THE WRONG TREE, WHICH WAS, OF COURSE, THE RIGHT ONE BY MISTAKE. "'and up he started. "'Matters were serious now. "'We remained still and awaited developments. "'The peasant toiled his difficult way up. "'The king raised himself up and stood. "'He made a leg ready, "'and when the comer's head arrived in reach of it, "'there was a dull thud, "'and down went the man floundering to the ground. "'There was a wild outbreak of anger below, "'and the mob swarmed in from all around. "'And there we retreated, and prisoners.' another man started up. The bridging bough was detected, and a volunteer started up the tree that furnished the bridge. The king ordered me to play Horatius and keep the bridge. For a while the enemy came thick and fast, but no matter, the head man of each procession always got a buffet that dislodged him as soon as he came in reach. The king's spirits rose. His joy was limitless. He said that if nothing occurred to mar the prospect, we should have a beautiful night, for on this line of tactics we could hold the tree against the whole countryside. However, the mob soon came to that conclusion themselves, wherefore they called off the assault and began to debate other plans. They had no weapons, but there were plenty of stones, and stones might answer. We had no objections. A stone might possibly penetrate to us once in a while, but it wasn't very likely. We were well protected by boughs and foliage, and were not visible from any good aiming point. "'If they would but waste half an hour in stone-throwing, "'the dark would come to our help. "'We were feeling very well satisfied. "'We could smile, almost laugh. "'But we didn't, which was just as well, "'for we should have been interrupted. "'Before the stones had been raging through the leaves "'and bouncing from the boughs fifteen minutes, "'we began to notice a smell. "'A couple of sniffs of it was enough of an explanation. "'It was smoke. "'Our game was up at last. "'We recognized that.' "'When smoke invites you, you have to come.' "'They raised their pile of dry brush and damp weeds higher and higher, "'and when they saw the thick cloud begin to roll up and smother the tree, "'they broke out in a storm of joy clamors. "'I got enough breath to say, "'Proceed, my liege, after you his manners.' "'The king gasped. "'Follow me down, and then back thyself against one side of the trunk, "'and leave me the other. "'Then we will fight. "'Let each pile his dead according to his own fashion and taste.' Then he descended, barking and coughing, and I followed. I struck the ground an instant after him. We sprang to our appointed places, and began to give and take with all our might. The pow-wow and racket were prodigious. It was a tempest of riot and confusion and thick-falling blows. Suddenly some horsemen tore into the midst of the crowd, and a voice shouted, "'Hold! Or ye are dead men!' How good it sounded! The owner of the voice bore all the marks of a gentleman picturesque and costly raiment, the aspect of command, a hard countenance, with complexion and features marred by dissipation. The mob fell humbly back, like so many spaniels. The gentleman inspected us critically, and then said sharply to the peasants, "'What are you doing to these people?' "'They be madmen, worshipful sir. They have come wandering we know not whence, and—' "'Ye know not whence? Do you pretend ye know them not?' "'Most honoured sir, we speak but the truth.' They are strangers and unknown to any in this region, and they be the most violent and bloodthirsty madmen that ever— Peace! You know not what ye say. They're not mad. Who are ye? And whence are ye? Explain, he asked us. We are but peaceful strangers, sir, I said, and traveling upon our own concerns. We are from a far country and unacquainted here. We have proposed no harm, and yet but for your brave interference and protection these people would have killed us. "'As you have divined, sir, we are not mad, neither are we violent or bloodthirsty.' The gentleman turned to his retinue and said calmly, "'Lash me these animals to their kennels!' The mob vanished in an instant, and after them plunged the horsemen, laying about them with their whips and pitilessly riding down such as were witless enough to keep the road instead of taking to the bush. The shrieks and supplications presently died away in the distance, and soon the horsemen began to straggle back.' Meantime the gentleman had been questioning us more closely, but had dug no particulars out of us. We were lavish of recognition of the service he was doing us, but we revealed nothing more than that we were friendless strangers from a far country. When the escort were all returned, the gentleman said to one of his servants, "'Bring the lead horses, and mount these people.' "'Yes, my lord.' We were placed toward the rear among the servants. We travelled pretty fast.' And finally, drew rein some time after dark at a roadside inn, some ten or twelve miles from the scene of our troubles. My lord went immediately to his room after ordering his supper, and we saw no more of him. At dawn in the morning, we breakfasted and made ready to start. My lord's chief attendant sauntered forward at that moment with indolent grace and said, "Ye have said ye should continue upon this road, which is our direction likewise. Wherefore, my lord, the Earl Grip hath given commandment." THAT YE RETAIN THE HORSES AND RIDE, AND THAT CERTAIN OF US RIDE WITH YE A TWENTY MILE TO A FAIR TOWN THAT HEIGHT CABINET, WHEN SO YE SHALL BE OUT OF peril. WE COULD DO NOTHING LESS THAN EXPRESS OUR THANKS AND ACCEPT THE OFFER. WE JOGGED ALONG, SIX IN THE PARTY, AT A MODERATE AND COMFORTABLE gait, AND IN CONVERSATION LEARNED THAT MY LORD GRIP WAS A VERY GREAT PERSONAGE IN HIS OWN REGION, WHICH LAY A DAY'S JOURNEY BEYOND CABINET. "'we loitered to such a degree "'that it was near the middle of the forenoon "'when we entered the market-square of the town. "'We dismounted, "'and left our thanks once more for my lord, "'and then approached a crowd "'assembled in the centre of the square "'to see what might be the object of interest. "'It was the remnant "'of that old peregrinating band of slaves. "'So they had been dragging their chains about "'all this weary time. "'That poor husband was gone, "'and also many others, "'and some few purchases had been added to the gang.' The king was not interested, and wanted to move along, but I was absorbed, and full of pity. I could not take my eyes away from these worn and wasted wrecks of humanity. There they sat, grounded upon the ground, silent, uncomplaining, with bowed heads, a pathetic sight, and by hideous contrast, a redundant orator was making a speech to another gathering not thirty steps away, in fulsome laudation of Our Glorious British Liberties. "'I was boiling. "'I had forgotten I was a plebeian. "'I was remembering I was a man. "'Cost what it might. "'I would melt that rostrum and... "'Click! "'The king and I were handcuffed together. "'Our companions, those servants, had done it. "'My lord Grip stood looking on. "'The king burst out in a fury and said, "'What meaneth this ill-mannered jest?' "'My lord merely said to his head miscreant, coolly, "'Put up the slaves and sell them.' "'Slaves?' "'The word had a new sound, and how unspeakably awful. "'The king lifted his manacles and brought them down with a deadly force, "'but my lord was out of the way when they arrived. "'A dozen of the rascal's servants sprang forward, "'and in a moment we were helpless, with our hands bound behind us. "'We so loudly and so earnestly proclaimed ourselves freemen "'that we got the interested attention of that liberty-mouthing orator and his patriotic crowd, and they gathered about us "'and assumed a very determined attitude.' "'The orator said, "'If indeed ye are freemen, "'ye have not to fear. "'The God-given liberties of Britain "'are about ye for your shield and shelter.' "'And then there was applause. "'Ye shall soon see. "'Bring forth your proofs.' "'What proofs?' "'Proof that ye are freemen.' "'Ah, I remembered. "'I came to myself. "'I said nothing. "'But the king stormed out. Thou'rt insane, man. "'It were better and more in reason.' THAT THIS THIEF AND scoundrel HERE PROVE THAT WE ARE NOT freemen. YOU SEE, HE KNEW HIS OWN LAWS, JUST AS OTHER PEOPLE SO often KNOW THE LAWS, BY WORDS, NOT BY EFFECT. THEY TAKE A MEANING, AND GET TO BE VERY VIVID, WHEN YOU COME TO APPLY THEM TO YOURSELF. ALL HANDS SHOOK THEIR HEADS AND LOOKED DISAPPOINTED. SOME TURNED AWAY, NO LONGER INTERESTED. THE ORATOR SAID, AND THIS TIME IN THE TONES OF BUSINESS, NOT OF SENTIMENT. And ye do not know your country's laws, it were time ye learned them. Ye are strangers to us, ye will not deny that. Ye may be freemen, we do not deny that, but also ye may be slaves. The law is clear, it doth not require the claimant to prove your are slaves, it requireth you to prove you are not. I said, Dear sir, give us only time to send to Astolat, or give us only time to send to the Valley of Holiness. Peace, good man. "'These are extraordinary requests, and you may not hope to have them granted. "'It would cost much time, and would unwarrantably inconvenience your master.' "'Master idiot!' stormed the king. "'I have no master. "'I myself am the—' "'Silence, for God's sake!' "'I got the words out in time to stop the king. "'We were in trouble enough already. "'It could not help us any to give these people the notion that we were lunatics. "'There is no use in stringing out the details.' the earl put us up, and sold us at auction. This same infernal law had existed in our own south in my own time, more than thirteen hundred years later, and under it hundreds of free men who could not prove that they were free men had been sold into lifelong slavery without the circumstance making any particular impression upon me. But the minute law and the auction block came into my personal experience, a thing which had been merely improper before, became suddenly hellish. Well, "'That's the way we were made. "'Yes, we were sold at auction, like swine. "'In a big town and an active market, "'we should have brought a good price. "'But this place was utterly stagnant, "'and so we sold at a figure which makes me ashamed "'every time I think of it. "'The King of England brought seven dollars, "'and his Prime Minister nine, "'whereas the King was easily worth twelve dollars "'and I was easily worth fifteen. "'But that's the way things always go, "'if you force a sale on a dull market.' "'I don't care what the property is. "'You're going to make a poor business of it, "'and you can make up your mind to it. "'If the Earl had had wit enough to "'However, there is no occasion "'for working my sympathies up on his account. "'Let him go for the present. "'I took his number, so to speak. "'The slave dealer bought us both "'and hitched us under that long chain of his, "'and we constituted the rear of his procession. "'We took up our line of march "'and passed out of Camben at noon.' and it seemed to me unaccountably strange and odd that the king of England and his chief minister marching, manacled and fettered and yoked, in a slave convoy, could move by all manner of idle men and women, and under windows where sat the sweet and the lovely, and yet never attract a curious eye, never provoke a single remark. Dear, dear, it only shows that there is nothing diviner about a king than there is about a tramp, after all. He is just a cheap and hollow artificiality, when you don't know he's a king. But reveal his quality, and dear me, it takes your very breath away to look at him. I reckon we're all fools. Born so, no doubt. We'll return with chapter 35, right after these sponsor messages. And now chapter thirty-five, A Pitiful Incident. It's a world of surprises. The king brooded. This was natural. What would he brood about, should you say? Why, about the prodigious nature of his fall, of course, from the loftiest place in the world to the lowest, from the most illustrious station in the world to the obscurest, from the grandest vocation among men to the basest. No, no. "'I take my oath that the thing that grappled him most to start with "'was not this, but the price he had fetched. "'He couldn't seem to get over that seven dollars. "'Well, it stunned me so, when I first found it out, "'that I couldn't believe it. "'It didn't seem natural. "'But as soon as my mental sight cleared and I got a right focus on it, "'I saw I was mistaken. "'It was natural. "'For this reason. "'A king is a mere artificiality, "'and so a king's feelings, like the impulses of an automatic doll,' are mere artificialities. But as a man, he is a reality, and his feelings as a man are real, not phantoms. It shames the average man to be valued below his own estimate of his worth, and the king certainly wasn't anything more than an average man, if he was up that high. Confound him! He wearied me with arguments to show that in anything like a fair market he would have fetched twenty-five dollars, sure, a thing which was plainly nonsense, and full or the baldest conceit. I wasn't worth it myself, but it was tender ground for me to argue on. In fact, I had to simply shirk argument and do the diplomatic instead. I had to throw conscience aside and brazenly concede that he ought to have brought $25, whereas I was quite well aware that in all the ages the world had never seen a king that was worth half the money, and during the next thirteen centuries wouldn't see one that was worth the fourth of it. Yes, he liked me. Yes, he tired me. If he began to talk about the crops, or about the recent weather, or about the condition of politics, or about dogs, or cats, or morals, or theology, no matter what, I sighed, for I knew what was coming. He was going to get out of it a palliation of that tiresome seven-dollar sale. Whenever we halted while there was a crowd, he would give me a look which said plainly, If that thing could be tried over again now, with this kind of folk, you'd see a different result. "'Well, when he was first sold, it secretly tickled me to see him go for seven dollars. "'But before he was done with his sweating and worrying, I wished he had fetched a hundred. "'The thing never got a chance to die, for every day, at one place or another, "'possible purchasers looked us over, and, as often as any other way, "'their comment on the king was something like this. "'Here's a two-dollar-and-a-half jump with a thirty-dollar style. "'Pity, but style was marketable.' "'At last this sort of remark produced an evil result. "'Our owner was a practical person, "'and he perceived that this defect must be mended "'if he hoped to find a purchaser for the king. "'So he went to work to take the style out of his sacred majesty. "'I could have given the man some valuable advice, but I didn't. "'You mustn't volunteer advice to a slave driver "'unless you want to damage the cause you're arguing for. "'I had found it a sufficiently difficult job "'to reduce the king's style to a peasant's style.' even when he was a willing and anxious pupil. Now, then, to undertake to reduce the king's style to a slave's style, and by force, go to. It was a stately contract. Never mind the details. It will save me trouble to let you imagine them. I will only remark that at the end of a week there was plenty of evidence that Lash and Club and Fist had done their work well. The king's body was a sight to see, and to weep over. But His spirit? why, it wasn't even phased. Even that dull clod of a slave driver was able to see that there could be such a thing as a slave who will remain a man till he dies, whose bones you can break, but whose manhood you can't. This man found that from his first effort down to his latest, he couldn't ever come within reach of the king. But the king was ready to plunge for him, and did it. So he gave up at last, and left the king in possession of his style, unimpaired. The fact is, THE KING WAS A GOOD DEAL MORE THAN A KING, HE WAS A MAN, AND WHEN A MAN IS A MAN, YOU CAN'T KNOCK IT OUT OF HIM. WE HAD A ROUGH TIME FOR A MONTH, TRAMPING TO AND fro IN THE EARTH, AND SUFFERING, AND WHAT ENGLISHMAN WAS THE MOST INTERESTED IN THE SLAVERY QUESTION BY THAT TIME? HIS GRACE, THE KING. YES, FROM BEING THE MOST INDIFFERENT, HE WAS BECOME THE MOST INTERESTED, AND HE WAS BECOME THE BITTEREST HATER OF THE INSTITUTION I HAD EVER HEARD TALK. "'and so I ventured to ask once more a question "'which I had asked years before "'and had gotten such a sharp answer "'that I had not thought it prudent "'to meddle in the matter further. "'Would he abolish slavery?' "'His answer was as sharp as before, "'but it was music this time. "'I shouldn't ever wish to hear pleasanter, "'though the profanity was not good, "'being awkwardly put together, "'and with the crash-word almost in the middle "'instead of at the end, "'where, of course, it ought to have been.' I was ready and willing to get free now. I hadn't wanted to get free any sooner. No, I cannot quite say that. I had wanted to, but I had not been willing to take desperate chances, and had always dissuaded the king from them. But now, ah, it was a new atmosphere. Liberty would be worth any cost that might be put upon it now. I set about a plan, and was straightway charmed with it. It would require time, yes, and patience, too, a great deal of both. One could invent quicker ways, and fully as sure ones, but none that would be as picturesque as this, none that could be made so dramatic. And so I was not going to give this one up. It might delay us months, but no matter. I would carry it out or break something. Now and then we had an adventure. One night we were overtaken by a snowstorm while still a mile from the village we were making for. Almost instantly we were shut up as in a fog, the driving snow was so thick that... You couldn't see a thing, and we were soon lost. The slave driver lashed us desperately, for he saw ruin before him, but his lashings only made matters worse, for they drove us further from the road and from likelihood of succor. So we had to stop at last and slump down in the snow where we were. The storm continued until toward midnight, then ceased. By this time two of our feebler men and three of our women were dead, and others passed moving and threatened with death.' "'Our master was nearly beside himself. "'He stirred up the living "'and made us stand, jump, "'slap ourselves to restore our circulation, "'and he helped as well as he could "'with his whip. "'Now came a diversion. "'We heard shrieks and yells, "'and soon a woman came running and crying, "'and seeing our group, "'she flung herself into our midst "'and begged for protection. "'A mob of people came tearing after her, "'some with torches, "'and they said she was a witch "'who had caused several cows to die "'by a strange disease.' "'and practiced her arts by help of a devil "'in the form of a black cat. "'This poor woman had been stoned "'until she hardly looked human. "'She was so battered and bloody. "'The mob wanted to burn her. "'Well, now, what do you suppose our master did? "'When we closed around this poor creature to shelter her, "'he saw his chance. "'He said, "'Burn her here, "'or they shouldn't have her at all. "'Imagine that. "'They were willing. "'They fastened her to a post.' "'They brought wood and piled it about her. "'They applied the torch while she shrieked and pleaded "'and strained her two young daughters to her breast, "'and our brute, with a heart solely for business, "'lashed us into position about the stake "'and warmed us into life and commercial value "'by the same fire which took away the innocent life "'of that poor harmless mother. "'That was the sort of master we had. "'I took his number. "'That snowstorm cost him nine of his flock, "'and he was more brutal to us than ever.' After that, for many days together, he was so enraged over his loss. "'We had adventures all along. One day we ran into a procession, and such a procession! All the riffraff of the kingdom seemed to be comprehended in it, and all drunk at that. In the van was a cart with a coffin in it, and on the coffin sat a comely young girl of about eighteen suckling a baby, which she squeezed to her breast in a passion of love every little while.' "'and every little while wiped from its face "'the tears which her eyes rained down upon it. "'And always the foolish little thing smiled up at her, "'happy and content, "'kneading her breast with its dimpled fat hand, "'which she patted and fondled right over her breaking heart. "'Men and women, boys and girls, "'trotted along beside or after the cart, "'hooting, shouting profane and ribald remarks, "'singing snatches of foul songs, "'skipping, dancing. "'A very holiday of hellions.' a sickening sight. We had struck a suburb of London, outside the walls, and this was a sample of one sort of London society. Our master secured a good place for us near the gallows. A priest was in attendance, and he helped the girl climb up, and said comforting words to her, and made the undersheriff provide a stool for her. Then he stood there by her on the gallows, and for a moment looked down upon the mass of upturned faces at his feet then out over the solid pavement of heads that stretched away on every side, occupying the vacancies far and near, and then began to tell the story of the case. And there was pity in his voice. How seldom a sound that was in that ignorant and savage land. I remember every detail of what he said, except the words he said it in, and so I changed it into my own words. It was something like this. Law is intended to mete out justice. Sometimes it fails. This cannot be helped. We can only grieve and be resigned and pray for the soul of him who falls unfairly by the arm of the law and that his fellows may be few. A law sends this poor thing to death and it is right. But another law had placed her where she must commit her crime or starve with her child. And before God that law is responsible for both her crime and her ignominious death. A little while ago this young thing, this child of eighteen years, was as happy a wife and mother as any in England, and her lips were blithe with song, which is the native speech of glad and innocent hearts. Her young husband was as happy as she, for he was doing his whole duty. He worked early and late at his handicraft. His bread was honest bread, well and fairly earned. He was prospering. He was furnishing shelter and sustenance to his family. He was adding his might to the wealth of the nation. By consent of a treacherous law, "'Instant destruction fell upon his holy home "'and swept it away. "'That young husband was waylaid and impressed "'and sent to sea. "'The wife knew nothing of it. "'She sought him everywhere. "'She moved the hardest hearts "'with the supplications of her tears, "'the broken eloquence of her despair. "'Weeks dragged by, "'she watching, waiting, hoping, "'her mind going slowly to wreck "'under the burden of her misery. "'Little by little all her small possessions "'went for food.' WHEN SHE COULD NO LONGER PAY HER RENT, THEY TURNED HER OUT OF DOORS. SHE BEGGED WHILE SHE HAD STRENGTH. WHEN SHE WAS STARVING AT LAST, AND HER MILK FAILING, SHE STOLE A PIECE OF LINEN CLOTH OF THE VALUE OF A FOURTH PART OF A CENT, THINKING TO SELL IT AND SAVE HER CHILD. BUT SHE WAS SEEN BY THE OWNER OF THE CLOTH. SHE WAS PUT IN JAIL AND BROUGHT TO TRIAL. THE MAN TESTIFIED TO THE FACTS. A PLEA WAS MADE FOR HER, AND HER SORROWFUL STORY WAS TOLD in HER BEHALF. She spoke, too, by permission, and said she did steal the cloth, but that her mind was so disordered of late by trouble, that when she was overborne with hunger, all acts, criminal or other, swam meaningless through her brain, and she knew nothing rightly, except that she was so hungry. For a moment all were touched, and there was disposition to deal mercifully with her, seeing that she was so young and friendless, and her case so piteous, and the law that robbed her of her support... "'to blame as being the first and only cause "'of her transgression. "'But the prosecuting officer replied "'that whereas these things were all true "'and most pitiful as well, "'still there was much small theft in these days, "'and mistimed mercy here "'would be a danger to property. "'Oh, my God! "'Is there no property in ruined homes "'and orphan babes and broken hearts "'that British law holds precious? "'And so he must require a sentence.' When the judge put on his black cap, the owner of the stolen linen rose trembling up, his lip quivering, his face as gray as ashes, and when the awful words came he cried out, "'Oh, poor child! I did not know it was death!' And he fell as a tree falls. When they lifted him up his reason was gone. Before the sun was set he had taken his own life. A kindly man, a man whose heart was right at bottom, at his murder that is to be now done here... "'and charge them both where they belong, "'to the rulers and the bitter laws of Britain. "'The time has come, my child. "'Let me pray over thee, "'but not for thee, dear abused, poor heart, and innocent, "'but for them that be guilty of thy ruin and death, "'who need it more.' "'After his prayer, "'they put the noose around the young girl's neck, "'and they had great trouble to adjust the knot under her ear, "'because she was devouring the baby all the time, "'wildly kissing it, "'and snatching it to her face,' and her breast, and drenching it with tears, and half moaning, half shrieking all the while, and the baby crowing, and laughing, and kicking its feet with delight over what it took for romp and play. Even the hangman couldn't stand it, but turned away. When all was ready, the priest gently pulled, and tugged, and forced the child out of the mother's arms, and stepped quickly out of her reach. But she clasped her hands, and made a wild spring toward him, with a shriek. But the rope and the sheriff held her short. Then she went on her knees and stretched out her hands and cried, "'One more kiss! Oh, my God! One more! It is the dying that begs it!' She got it. She almost smothered the little thing. And when they got it away again she cried out, "'Oh, my child! My darling! It will die! It has no home! It has no father, no friend!' No mother. "'It has them all,' said that good priest. "'All these will I be till I die.' "'You should have seen her face, then. "'Gratitude? "'Lord, what do you want with words to express that? "'Words are only painted fire. "'A look is the fire itself. "'She gave that look and carried it away to the treasury of heaven, "'where all things that are divine belong.' Thank you for joining us for these two very powerful chapters from A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Two chapters which gave us a very scathing look at British customs and law of the Middle Ages. We do have a few reviews we'd like to share with you. The first, five stars. Thank you. Great stories, nice pod. Down from Mars 77805, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, totally enjoyable, five stars. I'm a big fan of all the 1001 Stories podcasts. Great variety and fun way to listen to and learn about things I wouldn't normally have thought to listen to. Keep up the great work. Down from Kajsa 2 Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, thank you, five stars. Simple, wonderful, entertaining, great narration, interesting stories. This is one of my favorite podcasts, no lie. So thank you for being awesome. Down from Kiko, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so much for taking the time to stop and send us these reviews, you Apple listeners. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.